Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You are listening to Killer, and this is the case of Dean Coral, the Candy Man. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Good evening. Profile, a Houston tragedy, is only a title. It is a look at what regrettably may become the most sordid story in the annals of American crime. Perhaps as many as 30 teenage boys brutally tortured, murdered, and buried in and around the Houston area. Eyewitness News correspondent Larry Connors has covered the story since that first night. David, this entire story of sadistic homosexual slayings would almost appear to be fiction scripted with the full intention of shocking readers over and over again. It's that hard to believe. So many lives involved, so many killed over such a long period of time, and all of it going undetected. But it's not fiction. It's very real. A deadly conspiracy now listed as one of the most horrifying crimes in this century. An innocent-looking Pasadena home, but some of the people who went in were carried out in plastic bags. They had been murdered. Death in most cases came after the victims had been subjected to various sex acts and torture. The victims were all boys in the early to mid-teens who allegedly had been lured into a death trap by this young man, 17-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. It was Henley who unveiled this secret of mass killings and led police to the graves of the dead. Henley called the police to the home of Dean Coral. He said he killed that Pasadena resident. Henley said the 34-year-old Curl had talked about killing several young men and burying them in this boat storage in South Houston. Henley said he and two other young people were intended victims Wednesday morning. At that time, they had passed out at Curl's house after an all-night party. I woke up and he, had, he was clamping handcuffs on me. I was laying on my stomach. The other two were on their stomach and they were handcuffed and their feet were tied. I can't remember whether he tied my feet afterwards or they were tied when I woke up. I'd torture him if you'd let me go. Was he going to, uh, what, he wants you to kill them then? To begin with, he wanted to kill me. He was mad because I brought the chick over there. I was going to, the chick wanted to run away from home and I was going to travel with Dean. I thought it was safe. I didn't know no better. Henley said Coral did turn him loose, and then he described what happened next to the others, another young man and a teenage girl. Uh, he let me up and took them into a bedroom and strapped them to the board. Strapped, strapped Tim on his stomach, spread eagle on the board, and strapped Rhonda beside the board, beside Tim on her back. 
first he wanted Tim to take Rhonda, but Tim couldn't or he wasn't or something. And so he wanted me to take her, and he was going to mess with Tim. Henley said at one point, Carl put down his gun. He picked it up, ordered Carl to release the other victims, but he refused. And Henley says he shot Carl repeatedly. Henley's initial story makes it sound as if he were, in effect, a hero. But police suspicions were confirmed the next day. Henley said he had been involved in the murder and burial of some victims found in the dirt floor of this storage shed. For most of Wednesday night, lawmen continued to unearth bodies. All supposedly young boys, early to mid-teens, all had their hands tied, the bodies wrapped in plastic. Lime had been poured over the victims to help decompose the bodies. It did a more than adequate job. Bits and pieces of skeletons were removed time and time again. In some cases, flesh clung to bones like jelly. The stench inside that shed was almost overpowering. Those with weak stomachs stayed out. Just before closing down the digging operations for that night, a lieutenant in the Houston Homicide Division talked about the victims, and he talked about the killers. How would you classify this series of crimes? Just like I said a while ago, hell of a sadistic type of a clown that pull something like this. And you think most of these victims are young boys? I'm pretty reasonably sure they are. The reports that we have missing persons are all a bunch of kids, 13, 14, 15 years old. The death side and the graveside itself appears tragic enough, but do you think many of them went under any torture? Well, when you're fooling with a, a nut like this, it, that's a pervert, uh, you can expect most anything. Uh, or they use instruments, and, uh, a rack and so forth for their sex acts. So the digging operation ceased for that night. Now the public knew eight bodies had been found in this shed, but this was just beginning. And that became evident the following day, Thursday. Lawmen returned to the gravesite, shovels again dug into the soil in the 12 by 30 shed. The death count started rising. There was another body, and still another, and another. When the digging was finally completed in this shed, 17 bodies had been recovered. According to the owners of the boat storage, Dean Coral had always been prompt in paying his rent on this boat stall, which he had for nearly three years. Recently, he had been politely asking the owners if they didn't have another stall for rent. He said his was getting too crowded. 17 bodies, shocking, terrifying, and yet there were still more to be found. The trail of graves stretched into the piney woods of East Texas near Sam Rayburn Lake, not too far from Lufkin. Henley told Lawman that he helped Coral bury more victims in this area. At this time, 18-year-old David Brooks of Houston was also in custody as a suspect. Henley pointed to one spot and said, there are two bodies here, but only one was uncovered. So Henley said, that means there are two at the other site. After killing a rattlesnake, Lawman and Newsman moved cautiously through the heavy brush to the next location. Again, the shovels dug in, and Henley decided to start talking again also. Now, these just some boys that he picked up, or I helped him get, rather. And he raped them, ended up killing them, brought them down here and buried them. What part did you play in that? I helped him pick them. What part did you play in any of the killing, or did you? No comment. Wayne, this has been going on for some time, hasn't it? A year ago last winter. 
That's when you got into it. Yes. Now, you know or you think you know that maybe he was involved in this more than a year ago, right? I know. In what way do you know? I was told. By him? By him. By David Brooks. Now, David Brooks is another person who has been named. Now, what role did he play in all of this? Same as mine. The digging at the second spot produced only one more body before Lawman decided to call a halt for the night. They were to return the next morning, and they would uncover two more victims. That meant one Henley didn't know about. In other words, how many others could have been killed before Henley or Brooks became a part of all of this? It was possible, Henley said, that Carl had other young men working for him in the past, using them to procure boys for his sexual fantasies, using them to pimp for him, and then later killing them just as he started to murder Henley. There could be dozens of other bodies, and the only man who could possibly tell the entire grisly story was Dean Corll, and he was dead. Yesterday, the trail of graves took Lawman and Newsman to the southeast of Houston. Henley and Brooks said there were more bodies buried along the Gulf of Mexico. By now, the scene was becoming all too familiar. Shovels digging into dirt and yielding bodies. Heavy equipment was called in to assist in the recovery operations. Since there were few landmarks along the beach, Henley was having some trouble recalling the graves, but his directions did uncover more human remains. The white of lime mixed with the red of blood, bones, bits of flesh, again the indescribable smell of a decayed human body. The operations moved down the beach. At one point it stopped beside this camper. A Beaumont family out to spend a quiet day along the Gulf learned that they were within 10 feet of another victim. As the digging started and revealed the remains of still another body, the family packed up their camper. Yes, they had heard about the mass killings, but to learn that they were at the same spot where a teenage boy had been buried under two feet of sand, the Beaumont couple and their son headed for home. Before Henley and Brooks were returned to jail, Henley wanted to talk to reporters. He had told me earlier that the stories he read in the newspapers contained lies. Henley said he wanted to clear up and correct things, like his full name, and what happened to that girl at Carl's house Tuesday night and Wednesday morning? And a couple of other things most important to him. And when that boy turned himself in, I had not yet made a statement. I didn't make a statement till after he made his. So I didn't implicate him. He hung himself. That's all I want to say. I never said there were 30 people. I said 24. Name's Junior, not Elmer Wayne Henley. Well, watch my get your pictures. Dean Coro, 33, electrician and ex-Marine. Although he never pays any money, Wayne keeps bringing him boys for two and a half years. Most of the 27 victims live on the same street as Wayne, attend the same junior high school, and know Wayne Henley all their lives, until he invites them to Dean's house for beer and poker. Although Wayne wants no part in the homosexual rapes, he joins more and more in the slow torture and sadistic killing of his friends. Inside Dean's house, the naked victims are handcuffed to this plywood board at gunpoint. The floor is covered with vinyl sheets to catch their blood. The stereo is turned up to drown out their screams. The horrified boys see Dean get undressed and hope it's only rape. Then they see Wayne take out the hunting knife. One summer night in 1973, Dean Coral suddenly tries to rape and murder Wayne on their torture board. Who? Mama. Who's this? It's Wayne. 
He was the product of a broken home. Born on December 24, 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Dean Arnold Coral would become the most notorious serial killer in the United States history at his time. His father was very strict and his mother was overly protective. The couple frequently argued and eventually divorced in 1946 when Coral was seven years old. Mary Coral, Dean's mother, would relocate to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee to be closer to Arnold Coral, Dean's father. Arnold had been drafted into the U.S. Air Force after the divorce, and this move was to allow Arnold to see his children. Coral's parents were amicable and eventually remarried in 1950, which led them to move to Pasadena, Texas. Dean suffered a case of rheumatic fever, which wasn't realized until 1950 when doctors noticed he had a heart murmur. This type of fever typically occurs after having strep and causes severe inflammation and can affect the heart and can result in rheumatic heart disease leading to heart failure. By 1953, the parents had divorced again and Mary retained custody of her two sons. Arnold remained a part of the boys' lives. Coral's stepfather and mother met a pecan nut salesman who convinced them to start a candy company. According to public records, Pecan Prince was born on October 7, 1964. The business started in their garage and eventually graduated to a storefront in Houston, Houston Heights, Texas. As a candy company grew from garage to storefront, Dean and his brother worked day and night while going to school. Dean finished and graduated high school in 1958 with average grades. He was known as a loner and casually dated girls throughout his time in high school. His biggest interest was playing trombone in the brass band. In 1963, Coral's mother and stepfather divorced, and her mother opened up her own candy company named Coral Candy Company. Dean assumed the role of vice president. His younger brother Stanley was the secretary treasurer. Their former stepfather retained ownership of the pecan prints, and competition was intense. During their first year of business, a teenage employee accused Dean of sexually inappropriate behavior towards him. Dean's mother responded by firing the teen. So clearly you can tell... From just from that opening there, um, you know, Coral has a interesting childhood, to say the least, and he seems like a relatively normal child to most people. He gets average grades, goes to school, um, you know, does all those things, helps with the business. But then you see things, you know, you hear like how his mother and father bicker back and forth a bunch. They argue, they divorce, they remarry. And then that's that's got to, you know, play a little bit of a role in his mental makeup as a child. But not only that, um, you know, <laughs> the very last line there that he's accused of sexually inappropriate behavior and then his mom responds by firing the kid who reports the problem. Yeah, I, I don't think they played by the same set of rules in the early 60s, though. So No, they didn't. This isn't hashtag me too. I mean, but it's it's the first, you know, indication maybe to his mother or somebody in the family or in the business that, you know, there was probably complete denial on his mom's part that, you know, why would he be messing around with another boy? But, you know, to to that whole episode, one of the first in- indications that, you know, he's going down that route of being interested in young boys. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, like, it's the 60s, and, 
you know, homosexuality is not accepted. It's still not really accepted now. I mean, it's much more accepted than it ever has been. But still, there's definitely an, a, a large group of people who condemn homosexual behavior in any way. And, you know, but think of now, like, it feels like it's all over the place. And, um, you know, I know this is kind of stupid, but growing up, I, you'd watch... Uh, shows like beavis and butthead and then like they would make reference to the gay 90s you know and it was when like the the gay movement like really was starting the push and then i feel like it kind of fizzled for a little while there in the early 2000s but then it came back in the late you know i guess we're still technically in the early 2000s but you know what i mean like at the turn of the century it kind of fizzled for a little bit but then i felt like it picked up momentum again around like 05 06 and then started pushing again right around like when obama became elected again and and you know or became elected for the first time i'm tired today man i can't speak (laughs) but yeah um so you know it just seems like right you know back then just like how we're starting to see now like that progress that social progress where you know it's now okay to say you have been molested or inappropriately assaulted by somebody back then that wasn't cool you usually the accuser got punished and that's the the behavior that we conditioned people to have was shut your mouth when this happens to you, you shut your mouth you don't talk about it so i guess to tie that together to today you know that's where we are that's that's why you're starting to see this weird movement of people coming out of the woodwork from i mean decades ago with allegations against people because they weren't supposed to talk about it then and now it's starting to become acceptable to talk about it and these people are starting to be held accountable whether or not you agree or disagree with that being legitimate and that it should be that way um you know there's definitely room for discussion there but the fact remains that people can now express themselves and talk about these you know tragedies that happened to them when they were you know younger or even when they're older and just put into these weird positions it's one of those things where this stuff should be coming out sooner than later obviously so that way in the heat of the moment these punishments happen when they should not you know getting punished for something you did 20 30 years ago and it just seems strange now it has that strange vibe sometimes when people come out of the woodwork, like, you know, the Cosby accusers, they suffered a, a lot, you know, and, and, and their pain and suffering should not go unpunished. But it's just always weird because it happened forever ago in most cases. And, and now they're all just kind of like starting to come out one by one. Here they go, you know, and then you end up with Bill Cosby in prison. And it's just, it feels strange that way, but it, it shouldn't, I don't think. It, it should, because the thing that feels strange is it sh- this should have happened years ago. That's what feels strange about it to me. Yeah, but like you said, people were conditioned to think differently. You know, even even Cosby, what, 20, 30 years ago? And we're talking, for, for this case specifically, we're talking the early 60s. We're talking, you know, we have deep south ties here, Texas. Traditionally, Texas has always been a conservative area. But can, I mean, stuff like this, you just didn't talk about in the early 60s. And I don't know, you know, the, the fear of, you know, or the repercussions of being labeled one way or another, if you did come out and say something to this effect, you know, what does that pent up? I don't want to call it frustration, but you know, the, the fear of being labeled homosexual or anything of that orientation or just anything else. It's just, there's so much taboo around it that, you know, especially when we analyze this guy and get more into depth, are those contributing factors, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, those are great points. You know, and, and labels were a thing that in the past I felt like held great weight and now they're starting not to. So, I mean, they are in a way, but it's different. You know, labels almost held like negative 
connotation and now people are starting to use labels with the positive connotation and now you're starting to see it kind of swing that other way where like you have like the transgender community and then they've created like an acronym that's like almost the entire alphabet long of what you are and it's just you know now it's taken it almost to the exact opposite end of the spectrum and you're starting to see that swing happen and and it's kind of strange to watch but you know I feel like a lot of times when you really pay attention to these the way social things happen you know, we tend to swing the pendulum from one side to the other. And I think we've talked about this before, where like, as recently as the 90s, it was like the era of extreme and excess. And like, people were just like trying to push the boundaries in media. And like, you know, you had Howard Stern coming into his own and, you know, doing his thing. And then you've got, you know, the WWE, WWF back then was like going crazy too. And like, they were taking things up a notch. And, you know, like, if you just watch these themes and watch like music and everything, like they were just trying to kick it up to that next level, then we kind of course corrected. And now we're over sanitizing ourselves because you start seeing things like this where you know you have this hashtag me too now we're trying to hold everybody accountable for things and now you're, you're course correcting for the crazy behaviors that we were allowing to happen years ago and now we're starting to go the opposite way and it'll come swing back the other direction at some point but it's just always interesting to take that perspective and like look at society as a whole and how we were and how we are and then watch like how it'll just swing back and forth constantly yeah i completely and totally agree in 1964 coral was drafted into the united states army on august 10th and he was assigned to fort polk louisiana ultimately coral ended up serving in fort hood texas over his military career he was in good standing but he hated military service he ended up applying for a hardship discharge so that he could help his family's business his request was granted after 10 months of service and on june 11th 1965 he was honorably discharged it has been reported that he told some of those close to him that he was homosexual. Some of his acquaintances noticed the shift in his behavior when he was around teenage males after his time in the service, which led them to believe that he might be a homosexual. Coral was hard at work for his candy company, and the demand for their product was high. In 1965, the Coral Candy Company relocated to 22nd Street across from Helms Elementary School. The candy man was born here, having earned a reputation for passing out free candy to local children, particularly teenage boys. Coral put up a pool table in the back of the factory where employees and local kids would hang out. Coral began grooming local youths as he had sexual desires towards young children. There are two particular youths that play a vital role in the story of Dean Coral. David Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. We'll dig into David Brooks first. David Brooks first met Dean Coral in 1967. He was a fragile 12-year-old boy. Brooks reportedly said that that Coral was the first adult male who didn't make fun of his appearance. Brooks looked up to Coral as a fa uh, father figure. Coral would supply Brooks with cash whenever he needed it. After a couple years, the relationship turned sexual. Coral began paying Brooks in money and gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on Brooks. David Brooks befriended Elmer Wayne Henley before Henley dropped out of school at the age of 15. Henley noticed that Brooks was spending a lot of time in the candy company and became a casual acquaintance of Coral through Brooks. At first, Henley didn't realize that the relationship between Brooks and Coral was as complex as it actually was. Henley began to admire Coral because of his work ethic. By late 1971, Henley began to spend time with Coral. The relationship between Coral and Henley began with Brooks bringing Henley over to Coral's house under the pretense that he could make some money doing some kind of job for Coral. Over the course of the relationship, Coral had been testing Henley while at the candy shop by talking about crime and seeing how Henley felt about certain things. Once he had Henley in his house, he was possibly to be a victim of Coral, but Coral instead gave him a deal. This is the same deal that was offered to Brooks. Before we, we discuss this deal, let's talk about some things that were going on in Houston at this time. As Brooks and Coral's relationship became closer, Brooks walked in on Coral assaulting two boys in his apartment. The two boys were strapped to a four-poster bed. Coral promised Brooks a car and cash in return for his silence. 
Brooks received a green Chevrolet Corvette for his troubles. Later on, Coral confessed to Brooks that he had killed the two boys and that he had an offer for him. In the Houston area at this time, several young boys had been reported missing and could not be located. As you can probably guess, Coral was responsible. After Coral was discovered raping and torturing the two boys in his apartment, Brooks was offered $200 for any boy he could lure to Coral's apartment. This is the same offer that would also be given to Henley. Interesting thing here. So you got Henley, you have Brooks, and they're kind of starting to form this very close relationship with Coral because, you know, he started out by grooming them by giving them free candy and inviting them to the candy shop playing pool you know doing playing cards like doing all this these extracurricular activities with them and you you know you see that they start to form this bond and then you have brooks walking in on coral assaulting two boys and he simply takes a payoff to not say anything about it i have a lot of feelings about that because how how can you walk in on something that to that magnitude and then just take a couple hundred bucks to keep your mouth shut that's what i was thinking (laughs) it's like 200 well he gave him a corvette i guess so that that was quite a bit of money um yeah right but still yeah there's there is something seriously messed up with somebody that is going to keep hushed about it and then right at the end of that he said he starts offering 200 dollars per person he brings over to his apartment yeah just insane yeah and that that's that's the disgusting part of it all it's like Okay, you caught me. I'm going to pay you off. You shut up. Oh, hey, by the way, will you bring me um, some young boys? I'll give you 200 bucks a boy. <laughs> I was like, what? And I don't know. I mean, Coral was what, vice president of the candy company, and his mom was the owner, and his brother was like the secretary of treasury or something like that. But And somehow, like, the money's not adding up to me. Like, I don't know how he is making so much money selling candy. Between all three of those people that have a salary at this place, there's no way. Coral's making enough money to, to to buy a Corvette and pay $200 a head. Like, that just seems astronomical. I mean, remember, this is the 60s, 60s and 70s. Like, it's not, I don't know. I just, you know, he's not, like, making, like, 300000 bucks just to sell candy. You know, he's probably, he can't be making that much money. And $200 at the time was ridiculous. You know, that was a lot of money. Yeah. It's probably, like, giving him a grand. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and the same goes for the car. I mean, in today's standards, that car, you know, it might have been a couple, 3000 cup two to $3,000 you know, back at that point in time, maybe not quite that much, but $200 in the late sixties, early seventies is like handing out a small fortune to these guys. And he's doing it repeatedly to have these kids brought over. So yeah, maybe he's obviously taking advantage of, of Henley and Brooks because he knows they have problems. And, you know, maybe if they're coming from broken homes, if they're, you know, less unfortunate homes, maybe the money does talk volumes to those guys. Yeah. And I know in, We'll, we'll dig into Henley a little bit later, but yeah, he does come from definitely like a, a broken home situation and, you know, they're strapped for cash and this and that. So, you know, it does, it does appeal to him, that money, that promise, that money to help his family. You know, it just, it does, it seems completely strange that they would be willing to just turn around and take cash and shut up when you're watching. Like, like, can you imagine like talk? Oh, this is the thing that I always think about. Like always talking about these cases, a lot gets lost when you see it. It's different. And the thing that I always tell people is remember just a couple years ago in the NFL, when there was that huge dust up over Ray Rice and he abused his uh, girlfriend at that, I think they had a casino, I think it was, and they were in the elevator, and it came out that he had hit her. And then the Ravens turned around and suspended him for just two games. 
And there was a bunch of back and forth in the media, like, oh, two games is a lot. And some people were like, that's not enough, and blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly the videotape surfaced, and you witness him punch her in the face. And this dude is jacked. You know, he's probably, what, like 6'2", 220, you know, just solid muscle. And he plays in the NFL. And he jacks this girl, and she's got to be like 115 pounds, you know, soaking wet, and just drills her, knocks her down. And then you're like, okay, this guy should never never play another down of NFL football again. So it goes from, is two games enough? Maybe it should be four, to don't ever let this guy step on the field. You, just because you saw the video. So imagine that you're Brooks, and you walk in and witness this dude assaulting two boys. You see it with your own two eyes, and you still take the bribe of money and a car. Like, just the mental makeup there. Coral had somehow found this just totally wrecked boy who was just willing to be paid off, you know? And it's that's a fascinating thing to me, that you could f- find those people, and they're just willing to witness this stuff and not think twice about it. But but don't forget, Coral had, had abused these boys, so maybe they're of the thinking of, you know, they're kind of on the fence of where they are with, you know, their orientation, but they're like, hey, do I want to keep letting this guy abuse me, or do I want to take his money and find other people for him to, you know, take out his desires on? That way he's not abusing me any longer, and I don't have to deal with that. Let, let somebody else get the brunt of that attack, which still is wrong. But put the put yourself in their shoes, you know, would you rather get paid for everybody you brought over or would you rather be on the receiving end of him strapping you to a board or a bed and having his way with you? That's just, it's sick either way. That's a great point. And just as a side note, I looked this up while you were talking. The list price of a Corvette in 1968 was $4,663. By 1982, now this is a Chevy Corvette C3, so I'm not quite sure if the models are slightly different or anything like that. It could be, but just to give an idea, right? By 1982, the base price was $18,290. So just in a few years, you know, you jumped quite a bit. So just wanted to throw that out there because it it was just trying to put that in perspective. You know, he got bought off with like a less than $5,000 car, which at the time was really expensive. But, you know, a less than $5,000 car and then $200 per person. But to your point, that that abuse that he was suffering, you know, he may have been thinking, yeah, let's let's let this dude take it out on somebody else instead of me. Yeah, I, I think that could absolutely be the case. They just like, do I want to be the abused or do I want to be the one that's getting paid to, so he can take care of his needs on somebody else and not eventually not end up being the one that gets killed? Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the murders. So Coral's first known victim was 18-year-old Jeffrey Conan. Conan vanished on September 25th, 1970. He was hitchhiking to his parents' home in Houston. Conan was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road near the uptown area of Houston. It's assumed that Coral offered a ride to Conan. No one heard anything from Conan again. The timing of the abduction is roughly around the time that Brooks walked in on Coral raping the two boys from earlier. On December 13, 1970, David Brooks convinced two boys, James Glass and Danny Yates, to come to Coral's apartment. Glass had actually known Brooks and had been in Coral's house one other time. Both of the boys were tied up on opposite sides of Coral's torture board. They were raped, strangled, and then buried in a boat shed that was rented on November 17th. On January 30th, 1971, Brooks and Coral came across two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop. The brothers were walking back to their house after visiting some friends to discuss forming a bowling league. The boys were enticed into Coral's van and met the same demise as Glass and Yates. 
Between March and May of 1971, three more victims were murdered. They were all discovered later in the boat shed like the others. One of the victims, 15-year-old Ray Randall Harvey, was picked up by Coral on his way to his job as a part-time gas station attendant. He was killed by a gunshot wound to the head. The additional two victims, David Hillegeist, who was 13, and Gregory Mally Winkle, who was 16, were abducted and killed at the same time on May 29, 1971. David Brooks is known to have been involved in all of these abductions and murders. On August 17, 1971, Coral and Brooks were able to trick another kid, 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney, into attending a party at Coral's new apartment that he recently moved into. Reuben was subsequently another body found in the boat shed. In September of 1971, Coral had another change of residence. During his time at this address, Brooks confessed to helping Coral abduct and murder two more youths. One of them was kept alive for around four days this time prior to being murdered. Neither of these boys have ever been identified. We are at a body count of about 10 people at this point. Now, the timeline can be a little sketchy here. It's a little bit fuzzy because um, there's a little overlap in, you know, when Brooks gets involved and who knows how many people prior to Brooks getting involved were actually affected by Coral alone. But, you know, the timeline here is pretty... Yeah, it's pretty aggressive, you know? You've got, I think it was five five murders in 1970 at the end of the year. So, um, you know, assuming that's where it starts. And, and then you start escalating, you know? And it looks like, so in 1970, you have mid-September and then December. So just a few weeks apart. And then starting in 1971, you have the two brothers on... Uh, January 30th, and then you have the one boy on March 9th, then you have two more on May 29th, and then another one in August. So it's pretty aggressive schedule, you know? It just keeps on going. Yeah, for sure. In just under a year, if I'm lining the dates up right, I was look, doing the same thing, looking back to see what kind of a timeline we have here. You know, just around 10 victims in a year. Coral's not messing around. I mean, he he's getting down to business. He's He's got Henley and Brooks going out, and they're, they're finding people. Crazy to think that they're, you know, I don't know. You know, the missing person thing has always been one of the things that's been very widely advertised, but Houston's a huge area, and I'm assuming Pasadena is a, a suburb of of Houston, so yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I don't know. At local authorities, I don't know how good they had tabs on these kids that come up missing. You know, ten pe- ten kids to come up missing in a year, I would think would be setting off some serious alarms. Yeah, and that's the thing. Um, you know, the local area at the time, you know, all these teenage boys just keep going missing, and no one's really doing a whole lot about it. They're not finding them, and you know, and you got to remember, I don't know how many cases I've read or heard where you know the authorities as soon as you report somebody missing like within a few hours of them not coming back they're just like nah they probably went ran away or you know they went off to do whatever you know especially in this time period they just seem to discount and discredit the missing persons aspect and you know that that makes the trail go cold quickly you know you you don't go find witnesses who, you know, for instance, the first boy, the Jeffrey Conan, you know, he's walking in an area where he gets picked up by Coral. If someone spotted him, and if they did their job right away, you know, if, he, if he's reported quickly, and I don't know the details of this, but if he is reported to be missing within a few hours, um, you know, and police start combing the area, they might be able to find a lead on the vehicle that picked him up and, and track him down. But, you know, it doesn't seem that this is happening in the area at the time. 
Yeah, right. And most of the victims I think we're going to talk about, you know, they're, they're in their late teens, mid, mid to late teens. So, I mean, there is that aspect of there's a little bit more of free will at this point in history where, you know, kids are kind of doing what they want to do, roaming around, bouncing back and forth to friends' houses. But you know, it's still to me a little troubling that 10 kids just come up missing with, you know, without a trace, so to speak within a year, within a, the period of one year. And I mean, obviously we're, we're researching information that was compiled. We don't, we're not there, you know, we're not there at the police station and, and seeing what's happening, but I would feel like there should be a super sense of urgency when kids just start dropping off the map like that. And, and one other point I wanted to make kind of as a side note, what is it with these guys that are killers and their vans? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's a cliche that's carried over for so many of them. And I don't know about you, but every time I'm driving down the road and I see a panel van with no windows, I'm I'm wondering, I wonder if there's somebody tied up in the back of this thing or this guy's actually going to work. Oh, dude, you're not kidding. <laughs> the uh, the amount of like strange thoughts I've had lately since really, really, like I've always been into true crime. I listen to a lot of podcasts on it. I read a lot of books about it. I read a lot of news stories about it. But once you start really, really getting into this stuff, it subconsciously messes with you a little bit. You know, before you would hear like, you know, your air conditioner kick on at night while you're sleeping and not think anything of it. But now I'm thinking, who's in my house? You know, like, what are they going to do? And then you realize, oh, I'm just like having like a semi, you know, semi-conscious thought about, you know, some of the stuff that I've been reading. And I'm like, oh yeah, it is, it's just the air conditioner kicked on again, you know, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I do the same thing. I, I, I don't. I I'm now jaded and literally trust no one besides my wife, you know, and my immediate family members. But there's like, I find myself going to events and like looking around at people in the crowd, going, "Is there some secret serial killer that's been lurking around here that we don't know about? You know, some weirdo, some sadistic dude who you wouldn't really suspect, but they, you know, he's up to no good." And that's become a weird, you know, train of thought in my mind since really starting the show. I'm the same way in some aspects. You're absolutely right. I mean, I have the same thoughts when you walk out into a big crowd. And the crazy thing is, I guarantee you, we would probably be shocked and never want to leave the house if we knew how many people are around us in a crowd like that. Let's say a football game, for instance. You go Ohio State even. Okay, let's throw that out there. 110,000 people in the same spot. We would probably be scared shitless if we knew exactly how many people in that 110,000 crowd has killed someone else. Yeah, I know. I would love to know that number, but it, it it would just you would never want to leave the house, I don't think. That's I I agree. I mean, the amount of the amount of people that get killed or murdered and nobody can figure out who or why and then trying to figure that out like a lot, you know, you see this time and time again where there's like, you know, the mystery murder like some somebody gets killed in an area and then they try and tie it back to one of the serial killers who was known to be lurking at that time. What if it wasn't? You know, what if it's just an, either an unknown serial killer or a one-off like you know what i mean and it's just it's one of those things like i would be scared out of my mind if i could just scan the crowd i think about this all the time you're going through the mall and it's like you know if you could if you could scan the crowd and just instantly tell yourself you know how many of these people have killed somebody it's like you'd probably i, I mean i don't think the numbers are high but it's probably more than you think yeah I mean, you, get, you have to take into account the military service people that have had to kill because that was their job. They had to defend themselves and they were simply doing what they were supposed to do or what they were ordered to do versus somebody that goes out and just has a sick and twisted mind. Which I think is what we're I mean, talking about, right? Like, yeah, I would exclude yeah, right. policemen, military service members, people who for their job are there to be, you know, 
to to keep us safe and and so they've taken people down but i'm talking the sadistic ones who are like i just want to know what this is like you know um those people uh, i don't want to know how many of those people are around and plus you gotta think like you know if you just go to the mall you know how many times have you seen some shady looking dudes that you know are probably running in a, a rough crowd like a gang or you know something it's like how many of those dudes have knocked off somebody you know just because of, you know turf war kind of thing or a gang initiation kind of thing and i don't even want to know i don't go to the mall very often but i can tell you one place that you can probably find more of those people than the mall and that's walmart so <laughs> I, pr- I probably just kill i probably just killed any kind of sponsor deal that we'll ever have with walmart by saying that but it's true i don't know that i want to sponsor walmart <laughs> 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 i've seen more ass cracks at walmart than i think anywhere else in my entire life but that's neither here nor there yeah <laughs> oh man okay back to back to business <laughs> at this point with the help of david brooks the body count was around 10 this is where Elmer Wayne Henley comes into the picture. Remember, in winter of 1971, Henley was offered the same finder's fee from Coral of $200 for each boy he brought to him. Henley ignored this offer for quite some time, but in early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because his family was having financial trouble. It's believed that Henley's first victim was lured to Coral's in February or March of 1972, if his statements to police are accurate. They promised the youth they would smoke marijuana together at Coral's place, Using a, using a method Coral and Henley had concocted, they would pretend to be handcuffed, convincing the victim to handcuff themselves as well. However, Henley and or Coral would have a key in their pocket and free themselves. While the youth was handcuffed, Coral would bind and gag them. Henley left his first victim with Coral as he thought he was being sold into a sex slavery ring, which is what Coral originally told Henley when he offered him money in exchange for young boys. The victim is believed to be William Branch, who was 17, but it's not known for sure. If the victim is William Branch, that puts us at a February 9th abduction. Willard's remains were also found in the boat shed. I just want to correct you there. It's Willard. You said William a couple times, but it's Willard Branch. But I I could see how you would say that. (laughs) So I just want to make sure, um, just for the sake of the victim. On March 24th, an 18-year-old Frank Aguar, which I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right, so we'll just call him Frank, was lured to Coral's place on the premise of smoking pot and drinking beer. They did go to Coral's and smoke pot. This time, handcuffs were left on the table, and Frank picked them up. When he did this, Coral jumped on him and pushed him onto the table and cuffed his hands behind his back. Henley admits in an interview in 2010 that he didn't know Coral's intentions with the boys he was bringing back to Coral's house. He says he attempted to persuade Coral not to assault and kill Frank after seeing he was bound and gagged. This is when Coral tells Henley that he raped, tortured, and murdered the other victim that Henley brought to Coral and that he was going to do the same to Frank. Henley still assisted Coral and helped him bury Frank at High Island Beach. Henley continued to assist Brooks and Coral, killing several more boys. Henley was an active participant in the murders, according to Brooks. Brooks claims on one occasion that Henley strangled a boy and then shouted, Hey, Johnny! and shot him in the forehead. Another boy that was simultaneously being tortured pleaded with Henley, but was then strangled and both boys buried at High Island Beach. Henley was vicious, even towards Brooks. Henley reportedly knocked Brooks unconscious one time, and then Coral tied Brooks up onto the torture board and assaulted him, but let him go. The rapes, torture, and murder continued for several months. There was a lull in the killings when Henley temporarily moved away to try to distance himself from Coral. At one point, Brooks married his pregnant fiancée and took a break as well, leaving Henley as the sole accomplice to Coral. The body count just continued to rise, following the same sadistic torture, rape, and murder that had been going on all along. We have a lot going on here with 
Henley and Brooks, they're consistently helping uh, Coral lure victims back to this place. And it seems like Henley, almost more so than Brooks, is very active at this point in time in bringing um, young boys over to Coral's place and helping Coral find more victims. So, you know, it's it's pretty ridiculous at this point how many boys have gone missing and they still haven't been able to catch these guys. I think the interesting thing that you pointed out there with what you just covered was Brooks is saying that Henley essentially was just as involved in the murders as Coral was. But if we look back on the trailer, when, when the reporter asked Henley, you know, what part did you play in these killings? He's just like, no comment. He flat out denies it. He has no trouble you know, throwing everybody else under the bus. But at that time, he didn't want to be implicated in the killings. Right. And, you know, we're starting to get to the point where, you know, we're reaching that apex point where the killings are escalating. All three of these guys are in it full force at this point. They are consistently just murdering boys, burying boys um, in this boat shed that uh, Coral had rented. And, and the police are unable to find any of these missing boys. And Henley, at this point, is fully active in this, and he is just ramping up his uh, participation, and he's really luring people back to, to Coral's place for him. And and you notice there, what I said was, when Henley moved away for a period of time, you know, Coral kind of takes a break, which is a little bit, you know, interesting. So it seems like Coral wasn't able to actually lure his own victims at this point. He was so reliant on Brooks and Henley for this. And I want to throw out a disclaimer here real quick. Um, I am not a character actor, so that little Hey Johnny line I threw out, I know is absolutely horrible. <laughs> and I need to work on my southern accent if I want to rein in the Henley <laughs> character acting. So I apologize for how bad that was. Well, by next episode, I want to hear your Henley impression. Okay. Get working on it. I, that's going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, I think you'll be able to pull from it. I mean, you're from southern Ohio. That's basically the south, right? <laughs> I just got to draw it down just a little bit. That's right. Get into form. It's hard to you do. You need it. to slow it down. So that's what more. it is. I think you kind of have a little yeah. bit of the twang. You just need to just kind of slow it down. Oh yeah. Yep. I think I can pull it off, but I, I need to be a little bit more prepared. Like I said, it's 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 tough, especially trying to get into character at six in the morning. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So also at that time, um, when Coral is kind of known to have taken a little bit of a break, he also had. Um, hydrocell which is like a serious um, accumulation of fluid in the body cavity and so he may have taken a break because he was in some pain as well as it kind of lined up with the timing of of henley um moving away for a period of time at this point we're going to pause here and we'll pick up again next week with part two there's a lot more that happens here and you know, we'll really dig into that when we get to that point next week. But as far as part one is concerned, you know, we have several, several victims at this point, several missing boys. Um, 1972, when Henley gets involved, is really when, you know, all of these events start happening. You have, I mean, just to recap, in 1972 alone, um, important dates, you know, where things happen are February 9th, March 24th, April 20th, May 21st, July 19th, August 21st, October 2nd, November 15th. So, I mean, that is very frequent, that stuff is going down. 
um, it's almost monthly. I mean, there's a couple gaps in there, but it's almost monthly at this point. You know, things are really at their peak as far as the abductions, tortures, rapes, and murders are concerned. All right. You have any final thoughts? No, I'm looking forward to to wrapping this up in our second part. And like you said, we, we, we still have a ton of information to cover and just more details to go over. Yeah, in this case really gets interesting here coming up in the second half. And that's where, you know, a lot of the the really juicy details start to emerge. With that, we'll wrap on part one. We will see you guys next week for part two. If you enjoyed our show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, We would really appreciate it. It helps us appear higher in the search rankings when people are looking for new true crime shows to listen to. So if you really enjoy us, please give us a, uh, a rating. If you would like to give us some support, you can head out to our website, www.killerpod.net and click on the support button at the top of the page or in your podcast player there should also be a link if you would be so kind you can follow us on social media we are on twitter at killer underscore podcast we are on instagram at killer podcast facebook is facebook.com forward slash killer podcast or you can simply email us killerpodcast at gmail.com we would really like to hear from you guys uh we've had a lot of Uh, people reaching out a lot of new listeners hitting us up Um, you guys are awesome and i hope you continue to enjoy our show give us some feedback you know if there's something that we're doing that sounds horrible or annoys you let us know because we'll just tell you you're an idiot and that we're going to continue on totally kidding with that uh, i would like to leave you guys until part two stay safe